It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Every day, the whispers of discontent grew louder. The people were poor. Many of them were starving. And all the while, the useless monarchs of the Bourbon regime grew fat on rich food as they found more and more offensive ways to spend the country's money. This was Paris, France in 1785, just four years before the violent breakout of the French Revolution. Crowds formed in the streets every day as people shared stories of their hardship. France's king, Louis XVI, and his queen, Marie Antoinette, could do little to appease the unhappy populace. Throughout their reign, the king and queen had alienated themselves from their people with their lavish spending habits supported by oppressive taxation. By the mid-1780s, it seemed that the king and queen couldn't appear in public without causing some kind of public scandal. The press and public were eager to take them down a notch and sour their image across all of France. And this was no more true than in the case of the diamond necklace affair, in which an ornate diamond necklace was stolen from the crown jewelers, all under the queen's nose. It caused widespread embarrassment for the queen and king and further soured their public image to a population that was rapidly progressing on a path to violent revolution. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Today we are looking into the outlandish Affair of the Diamond Necklace. In 1785, as the people of France were airing their grievances in the streets and the entire country was building toward an inevitable revolution, the nobility class of France became swept up in a massive scandal. A diamond necklace, valued at over $14 million in today's currency, was stolen. And the man arrested for the theft could only offer one explanation. He'd been working on the orders of Queen Marie Antoinette. The aftermath of the crime revealed a long-running, complex con that left almost no one in the French monarchy looking good, least of all Queen Marie Antoinette. 
To be clear, there are no real theories to discuss as to where the diamond necklace went. We know what happened to it. But its disappearance led to the revelation of a wild tale of debauchery and theft that warrants its own episode. France was, to be blunt, a mess in the 18th century. The common folk were poor. Many were starving. The monarchy taxed the people heavily to fund costly wars across Europe and to support the lavish lifestyle that the French nobility class enjoyed. The Sun King, Louis XIV, had enforced the idea that the monarch was absolute in his power. Additionally, he could live lavishly regardless of the fact that his subjects were growing more destitute as the years went on. Louis's great-grandson, Louis XV, continued the tradition by embroiling France in costly wars, including some against his own people who tried to revolt. All the while, Louis XV set a standard for how the wealthy should live, and the nobility class of France followed suit. These nobles lived like the rules didn't apply to them. Beginning in around 1768, Louis XV engaged in a very public affair with Madame du Barry, a former courtesan who used the king's favor to rise up through the ranks of the nobility class. Madame du Barry even began advising the king of matters of state, much to the dismay of the king's family. In 1772, Louis XV was feeling very generous towards his mistress, and so he enlisted Parisian jewelers Charles Beaumaire and Paul Bassange to create, quote, the most extravagant necklace the world has ever seen. And though we don't have any pictures of the necklace today, by all accounts, the necklace that the jewelers made met that requirement. The finished necklace would consist of over 600 diamonds arranged in a network of ribbons and tassels. The scope of the order meant that it would take years for Beaumaire and Bassange to finish it. It would ultimately end up taking too long. Louis XV died of smallpox in 1774 before he was able to pay Beaumaire and Bassange for their work. With his death, his son Louis XVI took the throne. Madame du Barry had lost her one ally in the French court. The new queen, Marie Antoinette, made it one of her first orders of business to have Madame du Barry shipped off to a nunnery. With Louis XV dead and Madame du Barry indisposed, Beaumaire and Bassange were left in significant debt with a necklace that only a member of royalty could afford to buy. They appealed to the new king, who in turn asked Marie if she'd be interested in the necklace. Marie had only been in the French court since 1770 and had already developed a reputation for her lavish lifestyle and extravagant spending. Even so, she wanted nothing to do with the necklace. It's possible that Marie felt that the necklace was tainted by the fact that it had been commissioned for Madame du Barry, whom she detested. Or maybe she just didn't find the necklace to be that pretty. Either way, Beaumaire and Bassange were out of luck and out of pocket on a necklace that they couldn't hope to sell. It seemed that they would just have to take the loss until a decade later when they were contacted by one Cardinal de Rouen. Cardinal Louis-René Edouard de Rouen was an official of the French church, but that doesn't mean he lived the most devout life. 
Rowan was an ambitious man who hoped to use his position within the clergy to one day become the Prime Minister of France. As such, he spent more time getting familiar with important figures in the French noble class than he did performing religious duties. He was also something of a hedonist, with a reputation for throwing large parties and trying to bed just about any woman he encountered. His behavior in that regard ultimately clashed with his political ambitions. In 1771, Rouen was dispatched to Austria to oversee French interests in the first partition of Poland. He made his mark on the Vienna nightlife, and word of his debauchery soon got back to Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria. Maria Theresa was disgusted with the stories of Rouen's behavior and told everyone she knew that he was a detestable man who should not be associated with. Among those who received word of this condemnation was Maria Theresa's daughter, who was none other than Marie Antoinette. When Rouen returned to France, he found himself frozen out of the Queen's inner circle and generally persona non grata across much of the French nobility. Feeling that his dreams of becoming prime minister were dashed, Rouen fell into a deep despair. He drank, partied, and generally pursued every vice he could to make up for his botched political career. But then, in 1783, Rouen came across what he thought was his second chance to rise up the ranks of the French government. In that year, he met the Comtesse Jeanne de Lamotte, who claimed to have the favor of her distant cousin, Marie Antoinette. Jeanne and Rouen seemingly hit it off, and though she was married, she became one of his mistresses. A few months into the affair, she offered Rouen his heart's true desire when she told him that if he were to write a letter asking for an audience, she would deliver it to the queen. In that time, one did not simply open a line of communication with the queen, especially if the queen wanted nothing to do with you. Rouen seized the opportunity, drafted his letter, and gave it to Jean to deliver. Jean returned to Rouen a few days later with the Queen's response, signed in her own hand. The letter said that while the Queen couldn't publicly embrace Rouen, she was willing to let bygones be bygones and keep up a private correspondence. Rouen was overjoyed. In one letter, his grand plans seemed to be back on track. Even better, he had the ear of Queen Marie Antoinette. Naturally, Rouen's next move was to try and set up a private audience with Marie, but that wasn't quite possible just yet. The Queen assured him it would happen, but they would need to deepen their relationship through writing first. Rouen needed to truly show his devotion. So they continued their correspondence over the next few months. Jean would act as the sole intermediary, transferring the letters back and forth between Rouen and the Queen. Many of these letters would explain some task or project that Jean was working on for the Queen and ask Rouen for money to help out. Rouen happily obliged. As the letters and the requests dragged on, Rouen started selling his possessions and even taking out loans in order to keep up with the Queen's requests. It was worth it to him, though, because if he could keep Marie happy, she would one day pay him back and more. Still, Rouen did start to develop concerns as he saw his own fortune dwindle. 
He finally asked in as stern phrasing as he could while still being respectful for a face-to-face meeting to truly confirm their friendship. The queen wrote back that she agreed, and a meeting was set for a night sometime in late 1784. Rouen traveled to the Palace of Versailles and was led by a footman to one of the private gardens, known then as the Grove of Venus. After a few minutes of waiting, the queen herself appeared, wearing a veil that covered her entire face. Rouen fell to his knees and professed his love, friendship, and devotion to Marie Antoinette. The queen offered him a rose in response and said in a near whisper that all was forgiven. This was all that Rouen needed to assume that all was well and continue agreeing to the queen's requests in her letters. After the meeting in Versailles, the queen made her biggest ask yet. She wanted Rouen to secure the Beaumaire and Bassage diamond necklace for her. The letter explained that the queen was desperate for the necklace, but needed to procure it in secret because the king refused to pay for it. It's unclear if Rouen knew at that time that Marie Antoinette had expressed no interest in the necklace back in 1774 when she had the offer to buy it. Maybe he just assumed that she had changed her mind. Either way, he wasn't going to disappoint. Rouen met with Beaumaire and Bassange in January of 1785. The necklace was, naturally, still available, as the jewelers had failed to find anyone willing to pay for it. But Rouen gave them a letter from the queen that had explicit instructions on how the transaction would unfold. Beaumaire and Bassange would give Rouen the necklace, who would deliver it to Jean, who would in turn present it to the queen in private. The queen would then authorize payment to be delivered in installments so that the king didn't notice how much she'd spent. Rouen, Beaumaire, and Bassange followed the instructions to the letter, and Rouen handed the necklace off to Jean. Then they waited for payment. It didn't come. Rouen stopped receiving letters from the queen. Jean was suddenly nowhere to be found. After six months, in July 1785, Beaumaire and Bassage went over Rouen's head and appeared before King Louis XVI himself to express their frustration at having not been paid for the sale. The king summoned Marie Antoinette to answer for the missing payment, and she simply explained she didn't have the necklace. Rouen started to sense something was amiss. Whenever he got a glance of the queen in public, he'd see that she wasn't wearing the necklace. He started to consider the possibility that the queen had never received the necklace he'd procured for her. He fell into a panic, fearing that he had once again lost his chance to gain the favor of the French monarchy. Rouen was summoned before the entire French court in August of 1785 to answer for what was now being viewed as a theft. Rouen appealed to the queen, his friend, assuring her that he had only done as instructed and that he would never jeopardize their friendship by trying to steal from her. In response to his desperate explanations, Marie Antoinette dropped the bombshell. She hadn't spoken or written to Cardinal Rouen in years, ever since her mother had informed her to stay away from him. She knew nothing of the meeting in the Grove of Venus or the request to buy the diamond necklace. 
Flustered, Rouen assured the queen that Comtesse Jean de la Motte could corroborate his story. But Marie Antoinette said that she had no idea who that was. Next, we'll look at the life and schemes of Comtesse Jean de la Motte. Now, back to the story. In 1785, an expensive diamond necklace once commissioned by King Louis XV of France was stolen. The blame fell on Cardinal de Rohan, who had procured the diamond for his pen pal, Queen Marie Antoinette, or so he thought. When he was brought before the French court to answer for the theft, Rohan was as surprised as anyone to learn that Marie Antoinette had no idea about any letters or request for the diamond. When Rohan tried to explain that everything had been set up by the Queen's friend, Jean de Lamotte, the Queen stated that she had no idea of who he was talking about. This naturally raises a major question about one of the most important characters in this story. Who was Comtesse Jeanne de la Motte? Jeanne de Valois, as she was originally named, was born in 1756. She was a descendant of an illegitimate son of Henry II, who had been King of France in the mid-16th century. Though she had noble blood, Jeanne was raised in poverty. Her earliest memories of childhood consisted of stealing food and begging for money. As a child, Jeanne's father had always told her about their special family heritage, and Jeanne had come to resent her own poverty while other, true-born descendants of Henry II got to live in massive castles. As a teenager, Jean managed to get in the good graces of the Marquis de Boulainvilliers, a powerful noble in France at the time. The Marquis helped Jean by commissioning research of old lineage documents and was actually able to find legal proof of Jean's heritage. This proof entitled Jean and her family to a small pension from the French crown. It was essentially shut-up-and-go-away money. But... Jean had gotten a rush after convincing the rich, noble-born Marquis to help her secure her own payment. And she wanted more. In 1770, when she was 14, Jean met a minor, ambitious noble named Nicolas Delamotte. They were soon married, and Jean became Jean Delamotte. She had royal blood and was now a noble by marriage. But Jean was just getting started in her plans to rise to prominence. Nicola took to referring to himself as a comte, despite the fact that he wasn't one. Jean naturally became his comtesse, and she introduced herself as such. It's worth noting here that at this time in French history, sometimes the appearance of being a noble was more effective than actually being one. Nicola and Jean used their fake status to secure loans, which they then used to rent a mansion. Whenever creditors showed up to inquire about her debts, Jean would repeatedly state that she was a countess, and thus she was obviously good for the money. This was a corrupt time, and people in the working class generally feared the wrath of nobles, so Jean's act was generally effective in keeping her lenders off her back. Jean and Nicolas made a game out of swindling nobles. They'd dress in their finest clothes and sneak into Versailles for Marie Antoinette's legendary parties. 
One con they'd rely on often involved Jean pretending to faint. Nicolas would rush to her side and loudly proclaim that his wife, the Comtesse de la Motte, had fallen ill. By all accounts, the performances were convincing. The nobles who bore witness would willingly offer up money to Nicolas to help him care for Jean. According to one story, Jean and Nicolas once pulled this trick four times in one night at a single party, and no one caught on. As the years passed, Jean and Nicolas employed a variety of cons to amass a small fortune and a not-so-small amount of debt. But they always managed to stay one step ahead. Jean would take on potential marks as lovers, which Nicolas happily encouraged. In one case, Jean embarked on an affair with the secretary of the French court, Reto de Villette. Villette actually caught on to what Jean and Nicolas were up to. But rather than expose them, he joined them, keeping up his affair with Jean and partaking in their various cons through the early 1780s. But by 1783, both Jean and Nicolas were feeling unsatisfied. They'd been swindling minor nobles out of money for years, but now they felt like it was time to go after a proverbial bigger fish. And so, in 1783, Jean followed Cardinal de Rouen to a public place, positioned herself near enough that he could hear her, and started boasting loudly about her dear friend, Marie Antoinette. Rouen took the bait, Jean took him as a lover, and soon he was exchanging letters with the queen. Except he wasn't. You've probably guessed by now that Rouen never actually received a letter from Marie Antoinette. De Villette was the secretary of the court and thus knew how to forge Marie's signature. Jean and Nicolas would dictate these letters, which De Villette would write, sign, and give to Jean to deliver. For over a year, the con worked. The letters all appeared to be in Marie's handwriting, and thus, Rouen had no problem abiding by the requests to give Jean money for some reason or another. Jean knew that at some point she would need to appease Rouen's request to meet in person if she wanted to keep bleeding him dry. All she needed to do was to arrange a meeting between Rouen and Marie Antoinette without either of them knowing that it was a ruse. That was easy enough for a lifelong con woman like Jean. Jean enlisted Nicole d'Olivia, a Parisian sex worker. According to Jean, Nicole was young, pretty, and exceedingly stupid. Most importantly, Nicole bore a stunning resemblance to Marie Antoinette. The plan was simple. Nicole would wear an expensive white muslin dress that looked similar to the style that Marie was known for at the time. A veil would cover her face, and the darkness around the palace would serve to make it hard for Rouen to spot the ruse. The footman who led Rouen to the meeting place was, in fact, de Villette in disguise. The meeting worked, and Rouen left the garden that night convinced he had met the queen. Even so, Jean knew that her time of manipulating Rouen was likely coming to a close. She needed to use him to secure a major score, something so valuable that she and Nicolas could retire off of it. 
And so, shortly after the fake meeting, she delivered her letter to Rouen, asking him to procure the diamond necklace in secret. And as we've said, this plan worked nearly perfectly until Rouen was called before the court and the ruse was discovered. But by the time Marie Antoinette, King Louis XVI, and the jewelers Beaumère and Bazange realized what had happened, it was too late. The diamond necklace was already gone. It was later discovered that mere days after Rouen had handed the diamond necklace off to Jean, a jeweler had informed Paris police that Reto Davilet had tried to sell him loose diamonds at an incredibly low price. Police tracked Davilet down, but Davilet loudly berated them for interfering with his work. Davilet assured the officers that he was working on the order of the Comtesse de la Motte. As it had so many times in the past, the name of the Comtesse was enough to ward away anyone who was asking too many questions. The fact that de Villette had been trying to sell loose diamonds indicates the fate of the infamous diamond necklace. Jean, de Villette, and Nicolas had stripped the necklace of its gems and then worked to sell the stones individually so as not to attract attention. They sold the stones across Paris and London. It's likely that Jean and Nicolas stripped the whole thing down within hours of stealing the necklace. By the end of the month, there was no more diamond necklace to recover. Between January and June of 1785, Jean and Nicolas made quick use of their newfound wealth. They bought carriages, furniture, multiple residences, and hired a staff of servants. It's unclear what Jean's plan was regarding Rouen after the theft. She seemed to have successfully kept him from asking too many questions about the fact that Marie Antoinette had not once worn the necklace he procured for her, or the fact that Beaumère and Bassange had not been paid. Maybe she trusted that Rouen, her lover, wouldn't betray her even if he discovered the theft. Either way, by July of 1785, Jean's time was running out. We'll discuss the fallout of the diamond necklace theft and the fates of those responsible after this. Now back to the story. In July of 1785, Countess Jean de Motte and her husband Nicolas had successfully conned the Cardinal de Rouen into stealing a valuable diamond necklace under the ruse of procuring it for Marie Antoinette, Queen of France. Jean, her husband Nicolas, and their co-conspirator Davilet made quick work of the necklace, stripping it of its gems and selling them across Europe. All the while, Rouen fielded increasingly urgent questions from the jewelers, Beaumère and Bassange, about when they could expect their promised payment for the necklace. It's not entirely clear what Jean's long-term plan was here. She'd been able to fool Rouen into thinking that he'd been communicating with the Queen. But that was only because Rouen had been publicly ousted from the Queen's inner circle, and thus he had no way of confirming who he was really talking to. But Beaumère and Bassange were renowned jewelers who were in good standing with the King and Queen. There was no way she could stop them if they were to go directly to the monarchs and ask for their money. One wonders why Jean didn't take her ill-begotten riches and flee. 
Maybe she was just that confident in herself. And why shouldn't she be? She'd been grifting nobles for her entire life, and had even tricked a cardinal into thinking he'd had a meeting with the queen that never actually happened. Maybe she thought she'd be able to handle whatever came her way. But she wasn't. When Cardinal de Rouen testified before the king and queen in August of 1785, Jean learned that she didn't have things quite under control. Once it became clear that Rouen had been duped by Jean, the king issued a warrant for Jean's arrest. Jean was taken into custody, as was de Villette and Nicolas. Police also arrested a man named Cagliostro, Cardinal de Rouen's favorite magician. Cagliostro had nothing to do with any of this, but Jean dropped his name during the arrest for some unknown reason, and he was scooped up all the same. Whatever Jean's intention, Cagliostro was soon released after he claimed that his only crime was, quote, the murder of Pompey at the orders of the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. The only person who avoided arrest was Nicola, who was in London trying to sell more of the diamonds when the scheme was exposed. He stayed there in exile throughout the trial. The trial itself had something of an unintended effect on Marie Antoinette. If you've been following the story up to this point, you've probably gotten the sense that Marie was relatively blameless in this whole affair. She didn't know any of this was going on, and she supported Jean's arrest as soon as the ruse was discovered. At the most, Marie was guilty of not purchasing the diamond necklace in the first place, and thus robbing Beaumaire and Bassange of the payment that was promised to them by Louis XV. However, Marie was adamant that the trial be made public. Jean had posed as Marie in writing for over a year, Rouen had committed crimes while thinking he'd been acting on the orders of the queen. He may have even felt that he and the queen shared a romantic connection. Though she really did have nothing to do with it, Marie knew that in the eyes of the public, there were a lot of questions about the role she played in the theft. She hoped that publicizing the trial would make it clear that she was innocent and that her name had been used without her consent. But you have to consider a few contextual things about this period. This was 1785, just four years before the start of the French Revolution, which would result in the execution of both Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Discontent with the monarchy was widespread across Paris. Marie especially was a subject of intense hatred among the common people. To the average commoner, the Austrian-born Marie was a foreigner who had moved to France and wasted no time in using the French treasury to set up lavish displays of her own wealth. The diamond necklace itself was seen as a prime example of callous, wasteful spending by the monarchy. Here was an offensively expensive piece of jewelry that Marie had allowed to collect dust for the better part of a decade. Marie was innocent of any involvement in the actual theft of the diamond necklace. But she made a critical error in how she handled the fallout when she pushed King Louis XVI to make the trial public. Marie had hoped that trying Jean, Rouen, Nicole de Livia, and Dovillette in front of all of Paris would make it explicitly clear that she had nothing to do with the crime. 
What she failed to grasp was that even though Jean was the guilty one, everyone in Paris hated Marie far more than any of the accused. In making the trial public, Marie had essentially ensured that the matter would receive even more publicity than if they dealt with Jean and the rest in private. Marie inadvertently broadcast to all of Paris Jean's lie to Rouen about why the purchase of the diamond necklace needed to be a secret. Jean had claimed that Marie wanted the necklace but needed to keep the purchase hidden from the king, who had started to curb her spending. Though this was a lie, the press and the public felt that this was in line with something Marie would actually do— And so the gossip that spread from the trial was much more harmful to Marie's reputation than anyone who was actually being tried for the crime. The fact that the necklace was not recovered furthered the belief that Marie was somehow guilty and may have even arranged for the entire spectacle to occur so that she could keep the diamond necklace in secret. All of this happened despite the fact that Marie was never implicated in the official court proceedings. The fact that no one in power even explored the possibility that Marie was guilty indicated that she was pulling all the strings behind the curtain. Reto de Villette was naturally fired from his job as court secretary and exiled from France. Nicole d'Olivia was acquitted of her charges, but was warned about being duped by the likes of Jean in the future. Jean was sentenced to be whipped, branded, and imprisoned. Nicola was sentenced in absentia to be a galley slave whenever he was captured. The real question concerned what was going to happen to Rouen. Did he deserve punishment? He had played a major, though unwitting, role in the theft and had permanently embarrassed the monarchy. But if he was acquitted, then the French parliament was essentially making the statement that Rouen was innocent because he thought he was acting on the queen's behalf. And it was reasonable that anyone could believe the queen would act in the way Jean had portrayed. Rouen was ultimately acquitted, and Marie's reputation took yet another hit. Rouen did not stay in France after the trial. He escaped the violence of the revolution by moving to Germany. Jean's sentence was carried out. She was publicly whipped and branded, but she was something of a celebrity among the common folk during her brief imprisonment. She escaped in 1787, after barely a year and fled to London to be with Nicola. She died in 1791 after she fell out of a window. It was proposed, though never proven, that she was actually thrown out of that window by an enraged debtor. After Jean's death, Nicola waited out the revolution and returned to the new French Republic in 1799. Reto de Villette died in poverty in Venice in 1797. The diamond necklace affair is believed to be a catalyst in the history of Marie Antoinette. It signified a sudden, drastic decline in public opinion that culminated in her execution in 1793. In reality, the diamond necklace affair may have been more of a symptom of a deeper problem than a cause in its own right. After all, Marie was already deeply unpopular before 1785, and she was far from the only high-profile noble who was infamous for their lavish spending at the time. 
Still, the diamond necklace affair represents the height of greed, arrogance, and gullibility that ultimately led France to the point of revolution in the first place. The real mystery of the diamond necklace affair isn't what happened to it or how Jeanne thought she'd get away with it. It's how anyone involved in the story couldn't see how the offensive focus on wealth and valuables was going to lead France to the breaking point. Thanks again for tuning into Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. And remember, just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. Gone is written by Alex Switsky and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.